Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. During the weeks after being saturated with religiosity, the rituals, the chants, the vows, and the assault on my cultural sensibilities and natural inclination towards the casual. I came up not so much with a resolution about my practice as with a way of arriving at one. The easiest response to this discomfort I had felt in this highly ritualized environment should certainly have been balderdash. Ritual forms are nonsense. They're a perversion of real Buddhism, of real Zen, or or else a cultural artifact of the East Asian cultures in which these ritual forms arose and that are of little relevance in the critical thinking West. Ha! Although there is in the West a thriving Buddhist balderdash community, the balderdash response concerned me. How would I know that balderdash was the correct response? If I assumed that my responses were already always correct, what did I hope to gain from Zen practice in the first place? In what, for me, was an almost unprecedented display of good judgment, an early convergence of both smarts and wisdom, I chose to respond the opposite way. I decided to accept, as a working assumption, that there is a purpose for all of these ritual forms and related nonsense that I, in my ignorance, simply had yet to fathom. How could something persist generation after generation with no purpose? Furthermore, the only reasons I could think of not to participate in the ritual forms all had noticeably to do with ego, pride, or self-image, things I knew I was supposed to let go of in Buddhist practice and that I felt willing to let go of. For these reasons, I made the decision to begin sitting every week with Flint Sparks Group at the Clear Spring Zendo, which was the Zen group infamous in Austin for its many bows and ritual forms that until then I had intentionally avoided. I did not yet know it, but the moment of this decision was the moment when I came into alignment with the Buddhist path, the moment when I acquired faith in the Buddhist masters, in the refuges of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, to displace the hubris that I already knew what I was doing. I had once in my career as a scientist done something quite similar and did not thereby relinquish wisdom nor discernment. I had decided to accept with a degree of wholeheartedness whatever I was taught by respected Buddhist teachers or texts, at least until I got to the bottom of it in my own experience. 
embracing specifically the sticking points with an open mind and with curiosity would put me repeatedly in direct touch with my tacit assumptions. This policy would sustain an explorer's sense of curiosity, of delight in new possibilities, of awe, of deep reverence, and of a bit of foolhardiness throughout my career of Buddhist practice. Buddhist practice, I had discovered, was not for the timid. It was not that I had become a person of faith. I only traded one faith for another in choosing to let experienced Buddhist practitioners, rather than uninformed prejudice, inform my practice. Refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha is refuge from unexamined faith. Flint was a psychotherapist who had also trained briefly at the San Francisco Zen Center and was quite infatuated with Zazen and seemingly with all of the formal ritual aspects that had challenged me at Green Gulch Farm. He had become a formal student of Reverend Blanche Hartman, at that time co-abbot with Norman Fisher of the San Francisco Zen Center. Deeply inspired, he had remodeled a back room of the Clear Spring Yoga Studio in Austin, Texas, into an aesthetically appropriate fashion for Zen practice. A cozy space that accommodated up to eight people, seated against and facing the walls, as was the Soto custom. Flint was a kind of one-man band at the Clear Spring Zendo, offering incense, then ringing a bell for each bow that he provided as an example for others to emulate, then chanting while keeping beat on a small wooden fish, mokugyo, and ringing a small bell with the other hand at appropriate times during the chant. Chanting and zazen were the exclusive practices at the Clear Spring Zendo, with no dwelling on words and letters. Yet Flint's enthusiasm was infectious, and he had a sparkling talent for making people feel included, even non-verbally. Meanwhile, Flint's teacher Blanche, gaining confidence in Flint's promotional talents that would end up in the creation of the Austin Zen Center, assigned one of her new Dharma heirs, Saren Barbara Cohn, who was at the time serving as president of San Francisco Zen Center, to oversee Flint's fledgling group. Once Flint arranged for Barbara to lead a weekend retreat at Tenzo, a retreat center in the country near Austin, this was not to be a conventional meditation retreat. It seems Barbara had been a dancer in her youth and had drawn a connection in her mind between Zen spontaneity and improvisational dance. Her retreat was to be entitled Zen End Movement. Flint was concerned that fear of the unknown was inhibiting people, including me, from signing up for her offering. But then let us know one morning that Barbara had just phoned him to reassure everybody that it was not as bad as it sounded. It was to be fun. Still a bit wary, I and others reluctantly signed up. In fact, it would be far worse than it sounded. 
The weekend of the retreat, the sessions alternated between zazen and improvisational exercises. In one of the exercises, as an example, we formed two lines at two opposing walls of the room facing each other. Opposing pairs of people were to maintain eye contact, and each partner on one side of the room was to walk toward the respective partner and with each step make a different funny face. That was it. In another exercise, people paired up again in the room, and one partner was to move or dance randomly while the other provided vocal sound effects, much in the style of a Warner Brothers cartoon. Another exercise took place in the evening with the lights out. Everyone was instructed to lie on his or her back on the floor and to make sounds, playing off the sounds of everyone else. At one point, we all sounded like foghorns, later like crickets, and of course, we ended up all a giggle. During Zazen periods, we would take turns meeting with Barbara and former Doka-san. On the first opportunity, I sat across from her in Zazen posture. We settled down, and I told her my name, John. She asked, what do you think of Zen and movement? I said, well, to be honest, I find it a bit tedious. Sorry. Without missing a beat, she said, I've done these before and people have used much stronger language than that to describe them. She was clearly encouraging me to be quite frank and open in what I took to be the finest standards of the Zen tradition. Well, it's like playing with my kids when they were young, except it's still a little embarrassing to be so silly with a bunch of grown-ups. For the life of me, I can't see what any of this has to do with Zen. Why don't we just sit Zazen? Once I got going, I became quite harsh in my criticism, but she listened attentively and made no attempt to rebut my persuasive arguments. Certainly, I thought, for the remaining day and the next, she would be so convinced by the irrefutable logic behind my views and that we would just sit Zazen. However, we endured another full day of the same. At the end of the workshop, Barbara assembled a small group of dancing zenis for a debriefing. Tell me what you thought of this retreat and what you got out of it. Now, during the breaks, I had heard or engaged in hushed discussions with other participants that clearly indicated widespread disappointment and localized flare-ups of anger. But the participants were now clearly too polite to express this as openly as I had in Dokusan. I thought it was kind of interesting combining movement with uh, Zen. Who would have thought? It's like you take the spontaneity of Zen and use that to do dance and uh, other stuff. Suddenly, Barbara turned directly to me and asked, and what do you think, John? Wow, I hadn't seen that coming. She knew exactly what I would answer and that it would not be kind. But she was not looking for kind. She was looking for an honest opinion. Well, it's like playing with my kids when they were young, except it's a little embarrassing to be so silly with a bunch of grown-ups. 
for the life of me, I can't see what any of this has to do with Zen. Why don't we just sit Zazen? That was one hell of a gutsy woman. The upshot was that within about two days, I had decided to ask her to be my teacher. I arranged to connect with her at the San Francisco Zen Center during a forthcoming and homecoming trip to the Bay Area, and she agreed to take me on as a student. For the most part, we would communicate by email, but I made frequent trips to San Francisco, my greater family's home base. Just before the establishment of the Austin Zen Center in January of 2000, our community's first lay ordination took place. Lay ordination is called taking the precepts, or in Japanese, jukai. It's a rite of passage whereby one formally becomes a Buddhist, consisting of refuge in the Buddha Dharma and Sangha, the vow to adhere to the three pure precepts, such as to benefit all beings, and the vow to adhere to ten grave precepts, such as not to speak ill of others. Before Jukai, one studies the precepts and also completes a craft project, so that after Jukai, the ordinary can wear a blue rakasu at all Dharma events, a rectangular layered piece of cloth worn in front at about the chest or stomach level, suspended from the neck by a strap that connects to the upper two corners. Often mistaken for a pouch or for a bib, the rakasu is in fact a miniature monk's robe composed of scraps of cloth arranged in a staggered rice field fashion with overlapping and interlocking seams. The rakasu would have been sewn by hand, stitch by stitch, by the candidate for ordination, along with a cloth envelope to protect the rakasu when it is not in use. The cloth envelope itself was an amazing feat of origamic engineering, such that if the candidate does not follow instructions scrupulously, the result will be a hopeless snarl of outer cloth lining and thread. The idea of distinguishing oneself through special clothing bothered me. One of the senior teachers at San Francisco Zen Center tells that when she had first visited the center many, many years earlier and had seen students wearing rakasus, she naturally assumed that they were the ones who had attained awakening. Flint had received Jukai in San Francisco a few years earlier, but it was natural that he should distinguish himself by wearing a rakasu. He was the leader of our community until Barbara stepped on board a year or so later effectively giving us a dual leadership. When I discovered that Bill, then Jim, then Carolyn had already requested Jukai, some of the most committed of the committed among the Zen students, I began to consider differently and decided to request Jukai formally from Barbara as well. Upon hearing that I had decided to ordain, Flint emailed me and reported having tears in his eyes. I thought, tears in his eyes? It's a craft project. There was a ceremony for the four of us at Tenzo, with many in attendance, including my daughter Kimri, many with tears in their eyes. For me, it was enough just to remember my lines 
in Jukai, the ordinary is giving a Sino-Japanese name. Mine was Kotaku Hosen, which means vast virtue, free river. I think it came from helping out a lot at the incipient Zen center. I soon changed Kotaku into cold taco. The reader might well be wondering, how did the leap of faith thing work out, especially all the bows? Zen master Reb Anderson from the San Francisco Zen Center once wrote, by giving up our habitual personal styles of deportment and bringing our body, speech, and thought into accord with traditional forms and ceremonies, we merge in realization with Buddha. We renounce our habit body and manifest the true Dharma body. A short time ago, this would have been incomprehensible to me. Now it made perfect sense, even if I did not always live up to it. I discovered that learning ritual forms had gone through three stages already. The first was awkward. There was uncertainty whether I was doing a bow correctly or holding the incense properly. Myself, little Johnny, was manifestly embarrassed and hoping nobody was looking. The second stage was smooth. I knew exactly how to do the bow, when to offer incense, when to ring the bell, how to walk, to hold the chant book, to open the orioki bowls. Little Johnny was manifestly proud and hoping everybody was looking. They were, of course, too busy either being embarrassed or proud themselves to pay any attention to me. The third stage was clear and serene. I knew to care for the form, to bring body and mind fully into accord. The last hint of little Johnny dropped away, along with his agenda, along with his perpetual, what's in it for me, along with his resistance and anxiety on the one hand, and with his pride on the other. For at least the moment, I could experience what liberation must be like. Complete, perfect release from all the little self's baggage. At that moment, a hammer struck emptiness. There was no actor. There was only the form and the awareness of body and mind following along. The form was doing me. I had discovered a crucial Dharma gate that I had a short time earlier been ready to dismiss on the basis of unexamined tacit assumptions and forever close.